Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast is with Kurt Schroeder. Kurt was a former US Navy F-4 and F-8 fighter pilot. He eventually became the chief test pilot for Grumman, testing and developing the F-14 Tomcat. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Thank you and enjoy. Um, so could you give us a bit of background about your flying career? Sure. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I applied for a Navy scholarship, an ROTC scholarship, uh, which I uh, was awarded to go to the University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the It was a... Uh, uh, a program, NRTC, that ended up at graduation, you were given a regular commission in the United States Navy. Mm-hmm. So during that program, uh, they exposed you to different aspects of the Navy, and one of them, of course, was aviation mm-hmm. on, a, on a summer cruise. Yeah. And I was, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that's what I really wanted to do. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they extended the a mandatory the obligation of active duty after graduation from three and a half years to five years okay. and I had worked very hard to get a degree in mechanical engineering and people told me if you if you uh, if you uh, if you spend five years in the military you'll be so far behind in the in the corporate world behind your contemporaries that you'll never catch up. So I decided that I would forego aviation and went and was a on a destroyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the task of the destroyer was to chase the carrier around. <laughs> and I observed all the airplanes and I said, the hell with it. I still, the five years, are, I want to do it. And so I requested and the skipper approved it for me to go to flight training. So that's how I got involved in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first day of, uh, of uh, flight training, they ask everybody in the audience, how many people want to fly jets? And of course, everybody uh, raises their hand. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, look at the person on either side of you because he won't be there if you are. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to, uh, standing in class and what have you, that I got my choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to fighters and uh, so my initial assignment was to the F-8 Crusader which was the current current Navy fighter at the time mm-hmm. a wonderful airplane mm-hmm. and what have you I spent uh, a cruise a little more than a cruise in Crusaders and then the squadron transitioned to F-4s mm-hmm. and then I spent the rest of the time on active duty in F-4s and then I was selected to go to the Navy Test Pilot School, uh, where I had the pleasure of working with both the F-8 and the F-4. Mm-hmm. And after that, I had, in the interim, uh, gotten married and had a couple kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided that to leave the Navy, and Grumman was looking for someone uh, to work with them on the F-14 program. So that. That happened to me in 1972, and the F-14 at that time was in its infancy. 
So what was your initial role um, joining Grumman and working with the F-14? I was hired as an experimental test pilot and the various programs, they, they, there are different aspects on when a brand new airplane's been developed. Uh, what I ended up doing was given the responsibility for the carrier suitability mm-hmm. uh, effort on the airplane, which from a contractor standpoint is essentially uh, going to a Navy facility and demonstrating that the design strength, the strength in the airplane was adequate for the uh, carrier-based task. Mm-hmm. So what was the Navy considering to be the principal threat to the carrier at this time? The the, the threat that uh, was, was evolving was the uh, introduction of air-launched to surface missiles, and these were uh, uh, of course, the perceived threat was the Soviet Union, uh, and they had uh, large bombers that carried multiple mission uh, missiles. And these missiles were very, very high speed, supersonic missiles. And so, dealing with the uh, with with the <clears throat> with the threat mm-hmm. is that the Navy decided that what they needed was to kill the bomber. Mm-hmm. before he launched the missiles. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it meant that you had to have an airplane that uh, would go a long distance out range-wise, mm-hmm. would be able to loiter on a cap station for a long time, and then have the ability to target and kill the bomber before he uh, released the missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in conjunction with that, since there were always the threat of multiple bombers, yeah. the Navy wanted an airplane that could not only detect but track an airplane, a bomber-sized target, at long range, and had a missile that they could launch, and it would essentially, the radar in the fighter airplane mm-hmm. would guide the missile, but it could do it to more than one target. Uh, simultaneously, and the F-14 had the ability to do that at six different targets, mm-hmm. which was uh, considerably different than what the existing airplanes could do, which was only to designate and track one target. So what did the U.S. Navy uh, fighter community actually want in this new jet? Well, the, the fighter community was wanted a airplane optimized for the fighter mission Mm -hmm. and by that we mean the maneuverability was an obvious one performance of the airplane other things like field of view Mm -hmm. so that you can see out of the cockpit to see the threat and an internal gun Mm -hmm. all of these things were things they'd been living without in the F-4 the F-4 was designed for a little bit different mission so they were adamant about this time around they wanted an airplane optimized for the air-to-air uh, dogfight mission. So the F-14 was strictly air-to-air at this point. The F-14 from the from the get-go was a multi-mission design mm-hmm. for air-to-air and air-to-ground. Mm-hmm. And the uh, what happened as the fleet as the fleet uh, was involved in the development of the airplane, mm-hmm. they were. The fighter community was not interested in any 
of the air-to-ground capability. Mm-hmm. The times that, that that was all the threat was air-to-air. There wasn't a whole lot of ground attack uh, activity going on at that time, mm-hmm. and so they decided they weren't going to spend any money or add any weight to the airplane for air-to-ground. They wanted it optimized for air-to-air. So initially, the Navy actually wanted the F-111B, if I'm correctly saying. And what went wrong with this? Well, the F-111B, and we've been guilty of it since, is that somebody decided the way to reduce costs was to have a common airplane for all the services. Mm-hmm. And that would, in order for that to uh, to be true, then you'd have to believe that the requirements for the carrier-based naval aviation, the Marine Corps, uh, sometimes uh, uh, land-based close air support mission mm-hmm. and the Air Force's mission uh, in their thing that one airplane could do it all mm-hmm. and that evolved into the F-111 mm-hmm. uh, the, as it, it turned out to be somewhat of a disaster from the Navy standpoint mm-hmm. is that the airplane that resulted was extremely heavy it had very poor maneuverability. Mm-hmm. It didn't have any of the uh, aspects that the fighter community was looking for, mm-hmm. and it just it turned out to be uh, not suitable for the carrier-based task. Mm-hmm. The Air Force eventually uh, evolved the airplane into a, a long-range strike airplane, but it's a completely different mission. So, was the F-14? Um an actual design coming from the failure of, of the F-111, or was it already in design while these tests were going on? Well, they, it became obvious the F-111 was not going to, to be suitable for the Navy, mm-hmm. and Grumman uh, basically incorporated some items from the 111, most most notably the, the, uh, the radar, the long-range radar, and the long-range missiles, the Phoenix missile. Mm-hmm. And but then they, in in regards to that, they went ahead and and said, okay, but we're going to satisfy the other requirements as far as uh, the dogfight or the fighter role. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine Grumman had a lot of design challenges. Could you name a few for us and what they actually went through? Well, uh, yeah, that you know, basically. It was to put these capabilities into a single airframe, mm-hmm. and the technology at the time, uh, the F-14 utilized all the available technology, but there, there were things that today make everything a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the uh, be- best example is the advent of the digital computer. Yes. Uh, back Back then... Computers were, were in existence, but they were analog computers. Yeah, and they were digital computers were not considered mature enough to be incorporated into a design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the F-14 utilized uh, sm- small uh, analog computers, mm-hmm. but they were uh, located throughout the airplane, and depending on what their function was. Mm-hmm. Whereas in today's design, they they have Everything is centralized into a, a digital computer, mm-hmm. and everything controlled from one source. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that w- that was one of the issues. And then the Navy wanted an airplane that would would 
go to 800 knots, which is a very high speed at low altitude. Very, yeah. And they wanted a Mach number of 2.4, Mach number, those were the requirements mm -hmm. for the airplane, but then because it has to operate off the carrier, they wanted a carrier approach speed of about 120 knots. Wow. Which was a good 20 knots below, 20 to 25 knots below what the current airplane, the F-4, was doing. Yeah. So. How do you how do you get an airplane that's capable of that envelope, and how do you get the maneuverability, and that's where the variable sweep wing came in, and although the F-111 had a variable sweep wing, uh, it was manually controlled. Mm -hmm. In the F-14, it was decided that it would be computer controlled. The pilot can intercede, but basically it was automatically controlled. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the design of the F-14, the wings are uh, located uh, out. Uh, I have I actually have a model here that might right. be might might be. Uh, let me see if I can get it into your field of view. Uh, yeah, there we go. Just a bit higher. There we go. So you'll see you'll see here is that the wings. There's a, a wide fuselage. Mm -hmm that the wings are positioned out here. And what that does, unlike the F-111, is that there are no ordnance or anything carried on the wings of the F-14. Mm -hmm. All the ordnance is carried in the tunnel underneath mm -hmm. or, or on what we call the glove area, which is here, mm -hmm. which is not part of the wing sweep. Mm -hmm. So it made the aerodynamic efficiency of the airplane considerably better. Mm -hmm. uh, the other challenge that the, the Navy always faces is how do you reduce the size of the airplane when it's on the carrier deck? Mm -hmm. And Grumman uh, achieved that by incorporating in the wing sweep is a function called oversweep. Mm -hmm. You could sweep the wings past the normal in-flight position and it would put the wing tips inside inside the horizontal tail. Oh, okay. So, reduce the size of the airplane. Uh, they, uh, basically, there were things that were unique to the fighter community at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, Head-up display, which is very common in airplanes today, yes. was a brand new concept at that time. And so there was a lot, a big learning curve with the, with the HUD, the head-up display mm -hmm. in the F-14. The thing is that the Navy wanted something with long range mm -hmm. and uh, not only long range but good loiter capability and so it had to carry a lot of fuel mm -hmm. and a, a common solution to more fuel is to hang external tanks on an airplane. Most airplanes that I can think of give up a store station in order to carry an external tank. Yeah. The F-14 did not. It carried the external tanks on the on the engine nacelle, and so it was not a store station. So that was that was advantageous. The other thing that they went to with it is everybody was looking for more thrust. Yeah. And the way to the thrust at that time was uh, turbofan engines to have a high bypass ratio, which had the advantage of being able to develop more thrust but also was more economical as far as uh, in, in flight, and as far as fuel efficiency. 
the 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 challenge there was that when you made an afterburner to a fan engine, it it created all sorts of new problems. And yeah. once again, go back to the non-existence of digital computers at the time. The the fuel controls were all manual, mm -hmm. and so basically, when the afterburner would be used to either uh, to to be lit off or shut down, it would send a pressure spike up the fan duct and cause the engine to stall. Mm -hmm. Well, the F30, which is the engine that was in the uh, it was in the F111, was known to have very poor what we would call operability, mm -hmm. very to stalling, what have you. The Navy intent was that wasn't the engine intended for the F14. Yes. There was Pratt and Whitney was developing an engine designated the 401, which was a higher thrust engine and modern technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, the F14 was designed around the 401 engine mm -hmm. with its thrust levels. Well, unfortunately, as that engine ran into a huge developmental problems. Sorry. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Uh, huge developmental problems to the point that the Navy gave up on it and canceled the program. Mm -hmm. So the Navy, which had opted to use the TF-30 to get the initial development airplanes flying, but only to do that the first uh, 30, 31 airplanes, yeah. and from then on it would have the big engine. Well, the big engine went away, mm. and the TF-30 became the production engine for the, for the fleet. And the engine ended up driving almost everything in the airplane. Uh, the way the pilots were, were, were required to fly it, uh, to operate it, to uh, avoid the engine stalls. In a fighter engine, you don't want to, ha to have to deal with that, but that was necessity. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask, how did the pilots actually react to having the TF-30? Did they initially really dislike it or did they like it? Well, they loved the airplane, mm -hmm. and the engine was a was a, it was the only option in town. So they they learned a, a typical way to describe it was that they learned to fly the engine, mm -hmm. which is not the way. It's not what you want. Yeah. And as a result of it, the TF thirty we uh, had in development. It was always a challenge because the engine would stall uh, and it was generally a problem in maneuvering flight but also when you're trying to expand the Mach number and going to higher Mach numbers mm -hmm. the engine uh, engine stalls were a real problem. So what was the real uh, actual speed with the TF-30 engine? What was the maximum you could reach in the aircraft? Well, the design uh, goal or the design requirement for the engine for the airplane was 2.4 Mach number, and we got there. Okay. Uh, and, and it, the maximum Mach that we got the airplane to was 2.41, a little bit over that. Wow. But then uh, the the Navy decided that there because of the engine possibility, the engine stalling out there, that there were some structural mm -hmm. uh, changes that would have to be made to the inlet to counter that. Uh, to accept the loads of an uh, engine stall, and the Navy said, we, we don't need that, and they just really reduced the speed envelope on paper to 2.0, yeah. and that's pretty much how it lived 
for the rest of it. It's, they they felt that the difference was was not an operational yeah. necessity. So just backtracking a bit, um, I remember the F, the early F-14s had, and I'm not sure what they're called here, is it the front uh, canards, what used to be retract, retractable? Um, what happened to those? Okay, I can show those to you. I think they're on here. Yeah. Yeah, there they are. Uh, you can see these, and they're called glove veins. Glove veins, yes. And what they are is an aerodynamic surface that was extended either could be controlled by the pilot, but could, would also be controlled uh, by, by the computer that controlled the wing sweep. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the value of them is because of their location forward on the, on the airplane is they destabilize the airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about that is that stability, which everybody wants to have or needs to have in an airplane, is the enemy of maneuverability. Mm -hmm. And the obvious why that is is because in order to maneuver an airplane, you have to overcome the basic stability that wants to resist it. Mm -hmm. So the glove veins were destabilizing supersonically, which because of the center of pressure on the wing that, that moves when you go supersonic, airplanes are gain stability as they get supersonic. Yeah. And so the supersonic maneuverability of airplanes is restricted because of this increased stability. Well, the glove veins reduce that. It had uh, large uh, aerodynamic benefits, uh, but like everything else in the service of it, the Navy uh, decided that the, ex the weight, but more the maintainability aspects of having additional surfaces on the yeah. on the airplane were not were not uh, uh, justified and they, they ended up uh, eliminating them on the, the later airplanes yes yes it was unfortunate because it was a very useful surface yeah so moving on could you go over some development highlight points for us yeah I think uh, you know basically the first thing that uh, in the flight test program is all the fighter airplanes, at least the ones I'm familiar with, the Crusader and the Phantom, mm -hmm. when when you decelerated uh, and slowed down with the airplane and increased the angle of attack, that's the angle of the, uh, of the call it the wind, if you will, the air to the wing, mm -hmm. you'd reach a point where if you went any further, you'd lose control of the airplane. The, the wing would separate, it would roll off and... and potentially it could go into uncontrolled flight. Wow. So the question was, where was this with the F-14? And so when, they, when the flight test program started looking at the high angle attack characteristics and decelerating, lo and behold, is you could go all the way to full aft stick on the airplane, and the airplane wouldn't roll up, it just uh, uh, would be very controllable. Oh. And the reason for that uh, was, was, was kind of explained a little bit later when we got into the structural program, because when you start to expand the structural envelope of the airplane, typically one of the limits you reach is what's called wing bending. Mm -hmm. It's a structural thing in that the, the wings assume as you go to higher and higher loads, the wings accept more and more load and eventually uh, reach the strength of the wing. Mm -hmm. and 
would be a limitation, obviously. So on the F-14, when we got into that program, lo and behold, that as the load, the maneuvering load was increased, suddenly the wing load started to decrease, mm -hmm. which is certainly much to everybody's surprise because the airplane did not exhibit any nonlinearity. It was still maneuvering. Mm -hmm. And what it turned out was that the the wings would start relieving because of the uh, exceeding the angle of attack, but the, the aerodynamic load, the lifting, was transferred to the center body of the mm -hmm. airplane. Yeah. And that was a big benefit of the wide-spaced engines is that it actually became a, like a lifting body. Yeah. So basically what had happened is, is that the airplane really uh, had was nearly bulletproof as far as symmetrical G and load on it. Yeah. So I was going to say, with them all, when it was loaded up with Phoenix missiles, would that affect the lift at all? No, the the Phoenix is a is a large missile. It was a, it weighs a thousand pounds, and the airplane was designed to carry six of them. Mm -hmm. Now, four of those were carried on pallets in the tunnel, which mm -hmm. is the area that we were discussing. Two of them were carried, could be carried on the on the glove pylons, mm -hmm. but it, the, the Phoenix or any kind of store in the tunnel really didn't affect the maneuvering capability of the airplane, and. Uh, so, what you start to think about it too is that the uh, when you start to uh, maneuver the airplane and fire and rolling the airplane and everything else, the closer to the center of the airplane that the that the heavy stores are, yeah. the less less effect it has, and so we got big benefits mm -hmm. out of that as well. So it must have been very structurally uh, safe and very strong. It was the uh, the the only limitation that really came into the airplane is that on the F-14, when when you roll the airplane, control it laterally, uh, when the wings are are forward of uh, somewhat forward, we have spoilers on the wings which are used for lateral control. But then, as the as you got the higher speeds and the wings came back, the spoilers were deactivated, and then all of the rolling moment of the airplane is created by the 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 tails, the vertical or the horizontal tails of the airplane. Mm -hmm. These back here. Yeah. So, if you can imagine this in the aft fuselage of the airplane, when you're maneuvering symmetrically. You put bending load into the into the aft fuselage of the airplane, but when you're rolling the airplane, you put a uh, torque on it in order to roll the airplane. So basically, if it, it could handle without any problem as far as the rolling uh, torque or the symmetrical torque, but if you exceeded the design limitation of the airplane of putting a lot of bending on it and then put the torsion in, that's where you, people had to, had to watch what they were doing and stay within the limits of the airplane. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a characteristic that in today's uh, world would be real easy with a fly-by-wire control system because that way uh, the, the flight control computers know exactly what's going on and and they uh, it would prevent that from happening. 
I should back up a little bit, is the flight control system on the F-14 is, is hydromechanical. Mm-hmm. What that means is that the control surfaces, with the exception of the spoilers, the control surfaces are, are responded to by physical movement of either the stick or the rudder mm-hmm. by, the, by the pilot. And in modern airplanes with the fly-by-wire control systems, there is no mechanical connection. Mm-hmm. So basically what that allows you to do from a central computer is it could send commands to surfaces, whatever would be appropriate to, to uh, tailor for that particular moment. So the fact that the F-14 did all of this with mechanical, essentially uh, hydraulic, but mechanical control surfaces, mm-hmm. that the maneuvering capability of F-14 was done aerodynamically, mm-hmm. whereas in a modern airplane with a fly-by-wire control system, is because they have complete control of yeah. all the surfaces, it, they, can, they can overcome a lot of aerodynamic design flaws in order to uh, uh, protect the airplane. So how well did the auto sweep um, work? Did it work every time? Did it Was it reliable? It was very reliable, and not surprisingly, the first thing that came up was, well, what do you do if the wing sweep failed? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we actually had a test program where we intentionally failed the wing on one side and to see whether the airplane and it made for great pictures because there's pictures of the airplane with one wing forward and the one yeah. one all the way back, and the airplane's still flying, yeah. which it was. And you had enough control power that you could literally come back and land on a field. Now, you wouldn't want to go back to the ship in that configuration. No. But anyway, so the results, you could say, were, were very, very positive. But in the entire length life of the airplane, I don't recall a single... Wings, asymmetric wing sweep failure. They just, it was very, very reliable, and, uh, and it worked as advertised. So how much development uh, in terms of years before it was uh, introduced, uh, introduced to the fleet? Well, that's, uh, if you compare it against current programs, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, it's remarkably different. The, the airplane, first flight of the airplane occurred in, in the late 1970s, December of 1970, and the first airplanes went to the fleet four years later. That's that's and, very fast for a complicated aircraft. <laughs> well, that, and by today's standards, it's, it's blazing speed. <laughs> yeah. Because, as you know, the current airplanes, well, the current one has been in development for, what, 20 years? Whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, that that's another point that the F-14 was a four, uh, forerunner in it, is years ago, Grumman made airplanes for the U.S. Navy during World War II. Mm-hmm. And basically, when they were flight testing those airplanes, the pilot went out and would do a maneuver. This is trying to determine the structural strength. Mm-hmm. He would do a maneuver. He would write whatever he wanted on his kneeboard. And then the proof of the pudding was he'd go back and land, and they'd inspect the airplane mm-hmm. to see if it had caused any damage. Well, this is very time-consuming and imprecise, if you will. So the next thing you know, next thing that happened is they started to install onboard recording instruments. 
for the instrumentation on the airplane. Mm -hmm. I would go out and he'd do a maneuver and with the recorder on, then he'd come back and land and they'd take the recorder out of the airplane, dump the data out and decide whether they could go to the next point because all a flight test is basically step increments. You, yeah. you clear it to a point, you analyze the data and then you say, okay, we can go further and so on. Mm -hmm. So that obviously is once again time consuming. So the next iteration is said, well, why don't we take this data that's being recorded and transmit it down to the ground? Mm -hmm. And so therefore the engineers can see it right after the maneuver is complete. Mm -hmm. And they did that and the data would come down and it would be in, in uh, the increments of whatever the, the instrumentation had. Mm -hmm. The engineers in the ground station would have to copy those down go to their graph or their plot and plot that and say, okay, uh, it's following predictions or it's higher or lower, whatever. Mm -hmm. Once again, time consuming. Mm -hmm. So F-14 program got started. Grumman came up with what's called the automated telemetry station. Mm -hmm. And what that did is the same thing as the airplane was heavily instrumented. All the, all the instrumentation was transmitting the data down to the ground but now it was, it was entered into the computer. The computer would have the program and the software in order to convert it. Mm -hmm. And so now the, the flight test engineer is looking at a, on the computer a graph of exactly where, where that new plot lies in, in relation to the predictions. Yeah. So it just speeds the whole process up. And so when you're out there and you're particularly doing supersonic work, you're consuming a lot of fuel, so yeah. time time is important, and so that allowed the ex expediting of the flight test program tremendously, mm -hmm. and and basically uh, the other thing that we took advantage of was in-flight refueling. We had our own A6 tankers mm -hmm. that would go out with the with the project airplane, and then the, the rather than having to come back and refuel and go back out, the project airplane would take on, uh, if, for instance, in supersonic work, it would take on more fuel and, and, and continue the program. Yeah. That, that, that's really what, what truncated the flight test program. Yeah. So when it was on board and uh, part of the fleet, a lot of aircraft started being retired, such as the F-8 and the A-5 and their reconnaissance. Um, Role. Could you tell us a bit about how the F-14 filled this? Well, that that was a, uh, as you stated, is that the fleet air reconnaissance, which is mm -hmm. a photo airplane that yeah. would go out and would would photograph potential targets or uh, for uh, bomb damage assessment, mm -hmm. uh, was performed by the photo F-8. And then uh, as it got older and older, they, the Navy introduced the RA-5C, which was a conversion from the A-5A, mm -hmm. which never really uh, uh, had much of a use. And it was a very effective one, but then it got retired. Mm -hmm. And so now the question, who's going to do the job? And it, the job fell on the F-14. They designed a pod, a reconnaissance pod, that could be carried on the airplane, and so the F-14 became, it's called a TARP spot, tactical mm -hmm. air reconnaissance spot. 
And that became the photo uh, uh, information for the fleet. Mm -hmm. And they developed that to the point in the latter stages of it, they actually could transmit transmit that data back to the ship so they would get it before uh, before the airplane ever came back to the ship. Mm -hmm. So how well did the F-14 um, fill that role? Well, it had everything that you wanted in a photo airplane. Everybody that has ever done the photo mission, speed is, uh, is of the essence. Yeah. And the faster the better because you're going into high threat areas and speed is typically your only defense. Mm -hmm. The F-14 had the speed. Yeah. F-14 had the range. The, if, if required, the F-14 had the endurance to, to stay in a target area. Mm -hmm. And it had a self-protection capability. So if it was being harassed by enemy fighters, it, it could fight back. Mm -hmm. uh, an example of its predecessor, the RA-5C, had no air-to-air -air capability, so mm -hmm. fighters, the only way it could combat the fighters was with speed. Mm -hmm. So the F-14 had, had everything they were looking for, plus the F-14, it didn't really affect the handling, speed, capability of the airplane, so it was, it was very effective. So did, um, was there certain F-14 squadrons that just fulfilled their uh, photo reconnaissance role, or did they have to do everything air-to-air, air-to-ground as well? Well, what they did is they initially, the normal air wing, that's the complement of airplanes on the carrier deck, mm -hmm. would have two F-14 squadrons. So they didn't want to have to procure pods for all the F-14s because it was a specified mission. Yeah. So they would designate one of the two squadrons to have that capability, okay. and then they would have a limited number of airplanes that were configured to carry this pod, and right. so that was it. that was uh, now to show you the value of it is the later modification of the F-14, which was the F-14D. They they chose to modify the wiring in all the airplanes, okay. so they put a top spot on any of the airplanes. So that just shows you the tactical value of it. Yeah. And then in 1987, I think the F-14 had a massive upgrade with the F-110 um, engines. Could you tell us about this? Well, uh, let me just step back a little bit to the TF-30, mm -hmm. uh, because the TF-30 had many, many problems. And the, the, the significant problem was in maneuvering flight is that it, a typical dogfight is the pilot would like the ability to to select afterburner, come out of afterburner, move the engine to idle to max power, what have you. The TF-30 didn't like any of that, mm. and it was it had a tendency to stall there. Well, if if a a TF-30 airplane is in maneuvering flight, and and he's in full afterburner, and an engine stalls. The first thing that happens is the afterburner will 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 blow out. The thrust coming out of that engine goes to very low levels, and because it's it's not it's not producing thrust anymore. And in the F-14, because the engines are spaced apart, it provides an asymmetric 
yawing moment on the airplane, which is uh, if, if left unattended, can cause the airplane to depart. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, okay, step one, if you get into that situation, is you would like to remove, take the other engine out of afterburner mm-hmm. to remove the asymmetric thrust, mm-hmm. right? You can't do that because if you do, that engine is likely to stall. Mm-hmm. So now you're down to no engines. Mm-hmm. So basically, the procedure was if you had an engine stall at that point, that you would leave the other engine where, where it is, which mm-hmm. could be an afterburner. This complicated the recovery process of the airplane. So basically, uh, but we had no other choice because the engine, if you if if it did stall and you didn't and you didn't address it, mm-hmm. uh, it it would damage the engine and you might be out of engines. Mm-hmm. So when the F one ten came, F one ten had what we call compatibility everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you could, you had unlimited use of the throttle. You could go from idle to max AB, back, forth, what have you. The engine had no problem whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So basically, the first thing that came to our mind with the F-110 was we can modify the out-of-control recovery procedures. Mm-hmm. At step one is bring both engines to idle. In other words, you take the pilot out of the requirement to identify which engine stalled, what does he have to do, and everything else. You just, you don't question, just pull them both back to idle. Mm-hmm. Well, the Navy said, Nav Air, which controls it, says, well, you can't change it if we don't flight test it. Mm-hmm. He said, well, okay, so I, we will go out and we will flight test this. And in order to do that, you've got to go out and intentionally depart the airplane. Mm-hmm. Well, Historically, anytime you're doing that kind of a program called a high alpha program, they required that you had spin recovery devices, so mm-hmm. spin shoot, airplane, and other items. Uh, there wasn't any money. There wasn't a F-110 airplane configured with these devices. Mm-hmm. So we said we think we can do it with our with our development airplane, aircraft number seven, mm-hmm. and we can do it safely. We can go out. We can intentionally depart the airplane. And then we can institute these recovery procedures and make sure the F-110 behaves itself. Mm-hmm. Well, that program, which I had the pleasure of flying, it was marvelous. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, what we did with that airplane was incredible. Uh, and so, as final at the end of the program, I said, "What can we possibly do to stress the engine any more than we have?" And so we decided. We would try to do a maneuver where we got the airplane uh, in a tail slide at in the above 40,000 feet, around 45,000 feet. And so, with the engine, with the airplane sliding backwards at 45,000 feet, we cycled the engine from idle to max AB and back to idle, and it, it didn't miss a beat. Wow. So it was it, it, it's a marvelous engine. Well, having mentioned that. The obvious thing from a fighter pilot standpoint was the increased thrust of the F-110. Mm-hmm. It was dramatically increased the thrust, uh, and it allowed the Navy, from the standpoint, for instance, catapult launch. Uh, the TF-30 airplane, when it when it had a, nor- a gross weight that it was normally launched off the ship, 
would normally go on afterburn. Why? Because if you, right after carrier launch, if you lose an engine, you needed enough thrust to be able to fly away. Mm -hmm. Well, the F-110 has got enough thrust that in, in basic engine, so they could launch the airplane in basic engine rather than afterburn, which is a, is a big fuel saver because you're not required to use the afterburner for launch. So the F-110 made the airplane a different airplane. Uh, it was loved by everybody that flew it. Uh, the only people that are unhappy are F-14 pilots that left the community yeah. before the F-110 arrived. And then in 1990, the F-14D was introduced. Could you tell us a bit about the improvements on this model? Well, the F-14, uh, weapon system-wise, had essentially, from the early 70s when the airplane was developed, uh, until then, had really no significant upgrades to the weapon system. Mm -hmm. uh, the threat, as everyone knows, increases. Capabilities that you like to have increase and what have you. So there was a, uh, a plan to replace the radar, mm -hmm. uh, the AUG-9, which is essentially an analog radar. They, they went with a APG-71, which is a digital radar, much more capable. Uh, cockpit displays were changed. Mm -hmm. A lot of subtle little uh, things inside the airplane in the cockpit. Uh, unfortunately, as always, there were fiscal constraints on the upgrade. Whereas, I'll use as an example, when the Air Force decided they wanted to make an attack airplane out of the F-15C, mm -hmm. which is a fighter, and they wanted to make the, the E, which is a ground attack airplane, yeah. they essentially gutted the airplane and put all brand new stuff in it. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the F-14 going from the, the A and the B to the D wasn't, wasn't the, the fiscal constraints were much stricter. So they did put uh, things in to give it the capability, but it was much more of a patchwork kind of yeah. thing. Uh, but the evolution of the F-14 initially was fleet air defense, mm -hmm. and that's really what the Navy used it for. Then Desert Storm came along, and Desert Storm was all about ground attack. And Desert Storm was the first introduction of smart weapons. Mm -hmm. And we all know what smart weapons are, and so if you can only carry dumb weapons, nobody wants you anymore because they're never sure you're going to put the, put the bombs where you're going to have them. Mm -hmm. uh, so the F-14 guys started to think a little differently about hey, we're out here for uh, combat air patrol and what have you, but we're really not getting into the, the action, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And the solution was to put a smart weapon capability on the F-14. And the fleet did it pretty much by themselves. Mm. And they started, they, they installed a pod on the airplane, which was a laser targeting pod mm -hmm. called Lantern. It was an Air Force pod. It existed already. They integrated it uh, into the F-14, which gave them the ability to drop laser-guided weapons. Mm -hmm. And that transformed the whole mission of the airplane. 
because here now you had an airplane that number one could carry very large weapons. The airplane can carry uh, 2,000 pound bombs, which are about as big as they have. Mm-hmm. It can carry four of them in the tunnel. Uh, it can carry a, a greater number of, of small of uh, thousand pound bombs or even uh, <clears throat> 500 pound bombs. Mm-hmm. And it has a second person in the airplane that can run the targeting and what have you. So of choice in layer conflicts because it could stay there it could stay there longer it normally had bigger weapons more of them and had a second person in there to to run the whole show in the back seat and once again the the range and the payload of the f-14 paid off because that was the other aspect of it back in the design stage uh what the navy was facing then is ground attack planes and, well, carrier-launched carry airplanes, mm-hmm. if they didn't expend the ordinance that they, they went off the front end with, typically they weren't authorized to bring it back because of the structural concerns. Mm-hmm. So they had a jettison it if they didn't expend it on the mission. Well, the Navy put a requirement on the F-14, said anything you go off the front end with, you have to have the capability of bringing it back. Yeah. And yeah. So that, that was a, a big... A, a big requirement and so basically once again when you get into areas that where you have certain ordinance going off the front end and it's Phoenix you obviously don't want to jettison a Phoenix because mm-hmm. because it's too heavy to bring back aboard mm-hmm. and and it, it, the same is true for the smart weapons and so the F-14 was able to launch with these things and if it didn't expend it it was able to bring them back so it was trusted on the gra- um, from the ground guys um, that the F-14 was capable of doing the um, air-to-ground role. Well, they loved the F-14. I mean, if, if obviously they didn't have the capability to dictate what airplane was supporting them. Yeah. But they're always pleased to hear there was an F-14 because of the factors that I that I just mentioned to you. Uh, <clears throat> I. Some of the pictures I sent you was taken during uh, what was called the uh, pre-deployment update for the F-14D. But you'll notice on that airplane that in the tunnel were were four Mark 84s, which are 2,000-pound bombs. Mm. And the performance of the airplane was remarkable Mm. with the weapons on board. It just it is because it's a big airplane with. The F-110s is not hurting for thrust, and so it really is a uh, ideal situation for both the air-to-ground and air-to-air role. So, did the F-14 have more capability to carry more ordnance than the F-14A, or, or B, even for that matter? Well, the type of ordnance that you know, basically, that uh, the airplane was designed to carry Mark 84s in the tunnel, mm-hmm. and anything less than that. The airplane was designed to carry Phoenix out on the glove pylon, which is a thousand-pound missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also out there. You can carry uh, AIM-9 mm-hmm. sidewinders and Sparrow missiles and any kind of a, a mixture of those, depending on what the mission requirements mm-hmm. are. And you'll notice in that picture. You may notice is the airplane 
has HAR missiles mm -hmm. on the pylons. Uh, they 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 wanted to investigate that and and so we cleared harm on the airplane to the limits that the missile manufacturer uh, uh, allowed, mm -hmm. but then the software never really got into the airplane and decided they didn't have the money to do that. So you'll never see an operational F-14 with a harm on it, but. I remember during that program, the performance of the airplane was so so uh, impressive that we would get out to the carriage limits of the harm, and we'd be at partial power. And so we we contacted the manufacturer and said, "Well, we can carry the harm faster than what you're clearing it to. What what why do you have that? What what constitutes the carriage limit?" And the answer was, "We've never had a platform." <laughs> that could, could achieve the speed that we cleared it to. Yeah. So, it, uh, it was it, it really impressive. Because what what was carrying uh, what aircraft was carrying them was it the F four maybe the F sixteen at that time? Uh, the Navy would 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 put it on their attack airplanes. Oh, okay. You know, right. Seven. Uh, I'm sure the F eighteen carried it mm -hmm. and what have. So it was. The interesting thing is the harm is a uh, uh, the the effective range of the harm is is not its ability to receive a signal. In other words, if it if a radar is emitting, it can see the radar from a long way out. But can it can it get there? Well, it has a rocket motor in it, but does it have the range? Well, that range is impacted by how fast are you, and how high are you when you launch it? Mm -hmm. And of course, the F-14 could have could have beat anybody else as far as being high and fast, and it would have uh, uh, increased the effective range of, mm -hmm. of the harm. So, yeah. It, uh, so then, in 1990, uh, I think the Navy wanted to buy uh, more F-14Ds, but they were refused by the Defense Department. Is this true? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> basically. Uh, there's a lot of stories out there exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's accurate to say that if the Navy had been able to act unilaterally, in other words, uh, they requested more F-14Ds. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a feeling within the Department of Defense and, and how much of it was political, I won't get into that, mm -hmm. but the decision was that the Navy was going to save all sorts of money by just going with F-18s mm -hmm. and 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 cancel any future production of the F-14. Mm -hmm. <coughs> uh, I think there's a lot of people that regret that decision, but nevertheless, what people have to understand is once an airplane comes out of production, it's never going to go back into production. Of course, yeah. But it seemed it, by the time it was retired in 2006, it was at the top of its game, so it seems such a shame. I think most people will will admit that, that of all the, all the airplanes in the airway, which one has, is, is the most effective. And, uh, and I think most people would vote for the F-14. Yeah. And it's beautiful and my, as well. <laughs> yeah. So just going back to a bit about your career, and um, you were actually the chief test pilot until is it 1995? Yes. Uh -huh. Could you tell us a bit about that? 
what were your what your actual role was? Well, uh, I joined the company as a experimental test pilot. We had different categories, and all that meant was that you were authorized to do uh, envelope expansion with the airplane, what have you. <clears throat> and uh, I had. They, I had been sent out to California to work with the weapon system out there uh, at Point Magoo, and we, our our chief test pilot at the time was Chuck Sewell, and he unfortunately lost his life in a uh, in a vintage airplane. He was flying an airplane that was a World War II Navy airplane uh, that so. When he, when uh, they they were out of chief test pilots at that point, and so they they offered me the opportunity to come back to New York and, and uh, become the chief test pilot, and uh, and then from there I ended up having the whole flight test thing, and then we had. Was was the important important part of it? So, I think the the most rewarding thing is working with the fleet. These are the guys that are out there with your product. Yeah. And oh. and sometimes uh, they will uh, they will encounter things that nobody else had thought about and what have you. And so I'd like to think that Grumman was very very responsive to fleet inputs when the fleet. Mm -hmm. Had a problem where they they wanted a modification. Grumman would 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 do to the, the best of their within the constraints of having the funding and what have you that uh, to to make the the modifications that that the fleet was was looking for. Sounds like you had a great career with Grumman then. Grumman was a unique aer uh, aerospace company mainly because it was non-union mm -hmm. and. Typically, all the large manufacturers, even today, are union shops. And what does that mean? It means that uh, there, there were numerous attempts by the union to come into Grumman. Mm -hmm. And the management was smart enough to keep the employees very, very happy. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they, they wanted no part of the union. And the benefit of that is that typically, when we would take an airplane on the road mm -hmm. for a project, that we would have a relatively small crew because our electricians would, if we had an engine change, they'd be down there working with the engine people. Mm -hmm. And everybody was a, uh, pitched in when anything needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I had a, a short exposure to the union environment well, I was still in the Navy because I was flying a airplane supported by at that time McDonald mm -hmm. uh, Douglas, and and I found there that the union rules were such that even small things like putting a ladder up on the side of the airplane for the crew to get in and out. If you were not a designated plane captain, or say you were an electrician, mm -hmm. you couldn't do that. Okay. You, suffered consequences if you did because you violated the union rules. So. Mm -hmm. Not a way to run a business in my mind. No. So did you have any scary moments or memorable moments while being a test pilot? 
I'm sure no. you probably did, but <laughs> too many to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because uh, you are so involved in what's going on and, and what what's happening. You, you don't really have time to uh, to think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the other thing that you gain a real uh, sense of confidence in the competency of the people you're working with. Uh, I had a probably a good example was after when I joined the company, one of the times is they we had made a, a small change to the flight control system in the longitudinal axis. And so before they would authorize the change, we had approved that it, it had no adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. So in the brief for the airplane, uh, for the flight, they said, okay, at this point we would like you to, is to go out to 800 knots at 5,000 feet. And the airplanes I had flown previously, the F-4 and the, and the F-8, both had very high speed capability. Mm-hmm. But when you got out there, you wanted to be very careful with the airplane, mm-hmm. particularly and the longitudinal axis is set that you don't uh, initiate what is called a pilot-induced oscillation where the, the airplane starts to porpoise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bad things are going to happen there. So I'm saying to myself, well, when I get out to 800 knots, I'm going to certainly uh, <clears throat> be, I'm not going to do anything with the airplane. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put try to, try to, uh, put small inputs in and what have you. Well, the previous airplanes, the F-8 and the F-4, as the F-14 has, they have stability augmentation systems, which are limited authority to stabilize the airplane. And you would never go out to those speeds in either the F-4 or uh, the F-8 without that that stability augmentation system working. Mm-hmm. So on the F-14, I got. Said, said, okay, so I'm out to 800 knots. What's next? And he said, reach over and turn the pitch augmentation off. <laughs> Thinking, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> said, well, you sure about that? Yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. So, said, okay. After I've done that, now what do you want me to do? And he said, give the stick a rap. Mm-hmm. And what it means is, with your fist, is to hit the stick to induce an oscillation mm-hmm. and see that the airplane damps it out. Well, I thought they were kidding me. I said, you, you don't want me to do that. Mm-hmm. I said, you'll be fine. And lo and behold, the airplane very highly damped, not a problem. Wow. Now, that same thing, well, there's a, there's a video of the initial high-speed testing of the F-4 where the airplane went into a PIO and destructed. Mm. And so, I mean, it's a very dangerous environment, but the F-14, once again, just the basic airframe was just had incredible flying qualities. Interesting enough, the F-14D included a infrared search and track Mm -hmm. IRST system, Mm -hmm. which the Soviets, or should, I should say the Russians now, are very, very strong in this because what it does is it detects the IR signature of airplanes and the infrared 
And basically, if the airplane's flying at any kind of speed through the air, it's going to generate heat, mm -hmm. and it's going to show up and what have you. The F-14 had it. Uh, the newer airplanes so far mm -hmm. have it. So the F-14 had capabilities, and and the other thing is that it was a big airplane, uh, so it had a lot of volume in it. So as all these various missions came up and various capabilities and everything, they all fit in the airplane. It wasn't a matter of, of uh, finding a place for them to go. Mm -hmm. So if I, could, if I could do one thing to the F-14, uh, resurrect it and make one change to it, is I would put a fly-by-wire control system, flight control system in the airplane, mm -hmm. and it would have major, major benefits, but yeah. you know, we're talking pipe dreams. Yeah. So one thing uh, I forgot to ask, an early thing, why is the F-14C missing out? Where did that go? The which one? The F-14C. It seems to be missing an upgrade there. Oh. <laughs> Actually, way back when, in the initial part of the program, the, there was the F-14A, then the F-14B, was a planned upgrade, which I, I believe was part of that was the uh, 401 engine, and then there was a C that that developed. So there was an initial plan. There was an A, a B, and a C. Mm -hmm. Well, that went by the boards very very quickly. So the B eventually became an A with F110 engines in it. Mm -hmm. And some other changes, but basically the F-110 in the A airplane, mm -hmm. and and then the D uh, was the avionics, the radar upgrades, and, and the ejection seats were changed. There were significant changes mm -hmm. to the D. Mm -hmm. Now, where did the C go? That's a good question. <laughs> it was there initially, but like everything else, it kind of just disappeared. Yeah. So, is there anything else you would like to add before I go into some personal questions to wrap up this interview? Well, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, basically, uh, people always are curious about flight testing. Uh, I feel very, very fortunate because I had a chance to participate both on the Navy side and on the contractor side. Mm -hmm. And a good example of that would be in... Uh, carrier suitability mm -hmm. because on the Navy side you get to go take a new design to the ship and determine how slow you can shoot it off the catapult mm -hmm. and it's a it's a long process but it's 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 very very interesting and a lot of people aren't even aware of it but when you get down to trying to determine what the minimum launch speed is that they actually get to the point where to control the speed that the airplane sees as it goes off the catapult, they actually change the speed of the carrier yeah. to give it the, the correct speed. Uh, but anyways, when, when you determine that, uh, then the fleet will never, ever be shot off with within five knots of that. Mm -hmm. and, and typically, they'll give them 10 to 15 knots extra. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the responsibility of the Navy pilots. And then when you get on the contractor side, it's your responsibility to demonstrate that the airplane has the structural strength to 
<clears throat> to perform the carrier-based missions. Mm-hmm. The Navy, uh, that everything is controlled aviation by Naval Air Systems Command, and they mm-hmm. write the requirements for demonstrating the airplane. And I, I think they're very sadistic people because <laughs> they, they come up with things like, well, we have to, we have to uh, verify that the structural loads are acceptable uh, in accordance with what the spec is. Mm-hmm. The typical carrier landing, and I, most people I think are aware, Navy airplanes don't flare, they just fly a constant rate of descent to touchstone. Mm-hmm. Required to do that because of the precision required of where they touch down. Mm-hmm. So, a typical on a fleet airplane is probably landing in the area of 12 or 13 feet per second. Mm-hmm. Which is a uh, you know, fairly good descent rate. But the, dem- the design requirement for the airplane to give it margin is over 25 feet per second. Mm. So when they determine these, these limits, there's no, unlike some of the others which have a 1.5 safety factor, the carrier suit design thing does not. So they give you the option of saying you can either demonstrate 25 feet per second once or you can demonstrate 80% of it but you have to do it three times mm-hmm. and so you say why why do they make it three times what do you learn after you've done the first one mm-hmm. and my my personal belief is if you have to do it three times they're hoping you're going to overshoot mm-hmm. and they'll get a higher sink rate landing mm-hmm. but Basically, then they say, well, wait a minute, what happens if this would be for a normal landing, but what happens if he goes down, he dumps the nose in a flat attitude? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, we'll make him demonstrate that. So now you got to do the high sink landings in a nose low attitude. But wait a minute, what happens if he pulls the nose up at the last minute and he's got a higher than normal? Yeah, we'll make him demonstrate that too. So you in a nose high attitude or tail low attitude. And then you say, well, what if he was in a rolled attitude? What does that do? Oh, yeah, we'll make him demonstrate that. He's got to land at a, with five degrees of roll on the airplane. Okay, well, what happens if possibly he's he stepped on the rudder or something like that, and the airplane is yawed. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll make them demonstrate that. And then they said, but what if there's roll and yaw? Yeah, good idea. We'll have them demonstrate that too. And then they'll say, yeah, but what if roll is against the yaw? Oh, that's a good idea. We'll make them demonstrate that too. And it goes on and on. It yeah. becomes it, it. It it's it's interesting, and all this is done down in their facility at Pax River, where they have an arresting a shipboard arresting gear built into the runway. So all of these have to be done on arrested landing. So while all this stuff is going on, you got to once again land at the proper space so that the hook picks up the wire. So it's 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 very very interesting. So was it, would you, I suppose it's hard to say, was it more difficult than Navy flying or fleet flying? 
my my answer is yes because you're flying on a carrier approach you are flying at a, at a standard speed and uh, typically the carrier will work to eliminate any crosswind and what have you and your approach speed they they handle the wind over deck to make sure you're within the engaging speed for the arresting gear well on the beach that you can't control the wind mm -hmm. and so you've got to modify things based on what the wind is you might be working with a crosswind but the other thing is you're flying the airplane in a uh, completely off speed mm -hmm. you know things that you're either you're either fast or slow and then you've got to achieve the proper uh, required attitudes which are all recorded on on video and of course you have to do this and then they have to go back and look at it and say yeah you met the requirement or you didn't so uh, it, it it's very challenging work so yeah I can imagine very stressful but very rewarding it is and and they you know basically what we did at Grumman is if it was considered hazardous extremely hazardous we would not put a second person in the airplane we would fly it just with the pilot mm -hmm. and so for the whole carry suit program I had what is known as an anthropomorphic dummy in my back seat which was a life-size weight and what have you and he had flight gear and mm -hmm. everything but he he rode around in the back seat mm -hmm. and uh, and from the outside it looked like a normal guy in there except he obviously didn't turn his head or look around yeah <laughs> always wondered but uh, you know, basically, I think that's one of the things is that I probably have more single seat time in the F-14 than anybody else had just because of the length of the program. Okay, another uh, important characteristic for any carrier-based airplane is range and endurance. Mm -hmm. And so basically, uh, in the development of an airplane, in fact, through the lifetime of an airplane, Weapon systems change because the threat evolves, the technology available evolves, and so weapon systems are updated. What's much more difficult to update in an airplane is the aerodynamics of the airplane or the characteristics, as I would describe them, of the airframe. Mm -hmm. They're much more difficult. Uh, we had a recent example uh, of the Navy on one of their uh, in fact, the F-14 replacement was was uh, they were concerned about the limited range of the airplane. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, we can solve that. We will make a slight modification to the airplane and add more fuel. Mm -hmm. Well, when they did that, the airplane obviously got heavier. And so they said, gee, we've lost performance, maneuvering performance. So really, we have to redesign the wing and put a bigger wing on the airplane. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, okay. But now that you've got that, the performance uh, of the airplane, we need more thrust. Mm -hmm. So they, they looked and they said, sure, we can provide more thrust. However, the new engine is larger in diameter than the existing engine. Mm -hmm. So they had to redesign the fuselage in order to accept the new engine. And then they had to put new inlets on it to, uh, to uh, enable the airflow to it and the new landing gear. 
basically, by the time they got done, it's virtually a brand new airplane, although it was called a model change, date, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. Uh, and unfortunately, they really haven't solved the problem. So what I'd like to do is just take these considerations and look at the F-14 program mm-hmm. as a whole. Uh, basically, the first question a person has to ask is, did the airplane meet the threat? And I think unequivocally, the F-14 did, in fact, meet the threat that it was designed for. Uh, did the airplane evolve during its lifetime to changes in the threat? And the answer to that is obviously yes, not only upgrades to the radar and what have you, but also the uh, inclusion or the development of a very, very effective air-to-ground capability and photo capability. So, and then the next thing you have to ask about any given airplane, how long was it in service? And in case of the F-14, I think I calculated it's 36 years from the first flight of the airplane until the retirement. Mm -hmm. So that's a long span, particularly for a fighter. Definitely. Uh, So basically, when the decision is made to retire the airplane, what drives that decision? Uh, One consideration could be that it no longer meets the threat. It no longer meets the requirements. I don't think anybody would dispute that that didn't apply to the Mm F-14. The next thing is there was a better option available, another airplane that could do it, do the same mission or, or better and at a more economical cost. I think that has been put to bed as far as the F-14 goes. And then the one that has control over is the airplane could be retired because of the political environment. That some politician somewhere decides that they're, not, they're no longer going to produce that airplane, they're going with another one. Mm-hmm. And the it doesn't matter what the operators of the airplane, in this case, the U.S. Navy, wants. It doesn't matter. The politicians know better. So, basically, uh, I want to point out with the F-14, the thing that amazed me is the, uh, the last airplane that we produced on the, on the line mm-hmm. looked remarkably like the first. Did, yeah. the air, I'm addressing not necessarily the weapon system. I'm addressing the airframe and what have you. The major change were bigger engines, but as we've discussed, that was part of the original plan for the airplane. Mm -hmm. So really, the last airplane we produced looked remarkably like the first one. So if you add all this stuff up, I think I can uh, very confidently say the F-14 the Navy's ever had. Well, it's been a pleasure, but do you mind if I um, ask you some more personal questions so we can get a personal side of you? Sure. So, do you have sure. any hobbies? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, we live in the Northwest, and it's the ideal spot for boating up here. So, we, we're, we're into that. We uh, have the opportunity here to uh, take advantage of Mother Nature. We have crabbing and, and prawning and fishing and, and cruising and what have you. So boating is the primary uh, occupation for us now, uh, recreation-wise. Sounds very tranquil. And then, and then I, occasionally I get 
technically challenged, like someone asked me to use Skype, which I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, you can blame me for that. So, is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown or tested? Yeah, everybody has a favorite airplane. Uh, the Crusader, which was my first fleet airplane, I always loved that airplane. There is a good example of an airplane that was very, very demanding mm -hmm. to land on the carrier. But the fighter pilots were more than willing to accept that challenge to get the performance that the airplane offered. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, I spent so much time on the F-14 and I don't have any loyalty left for any other airplane. I can imagine, yeah. Quite <laughs> uh, nice, though. Uh, uh, I, we had Grumman participated. We built, designed, and built a technology demonstrator, the X-29, which is a forward-swept wing airplane. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And I had the pleasure of being the project pilot on that. And it, it was very, very uh, challenging, interesting. And a, and a great experience. So, I, I guess through my association between the Navy and Grumman, yeah. there's not yeah. another plane out there that I said, "Gee, I wish I could have flown that one." Mm. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question from one of our viewers. Um, how did the F-14 compare to the F-15? <clears throat> well, the the Air Force when they Designed the F-15. They had they had one design requirement, and that was to optimize it as a fighter. I'm talking about the initial design for the F-15. Yeah. The Navy, as we've discussed on the F-14, had other requirements: the fleet air defense, the long range, the the big missiles, and everything else. So, initially, uh, the thrust to weight which is always an important thing in a, in a fighter, advantage really went to the F-15. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, uh, until the F-110 arrived in the F-14, and I would, I would say that a proficient F-14 guy would not be intimidated at all by the F-15. Mm -hmm. uh, the F-15 is a fine airplane, uh, but that initial advantage of a much better thrust to weight ratio mm -hmm. went away once we got the F-110. Hmm. Do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a there's a great uh, uh, there's a a great story about uh, a woman on a date uh, a, a blind date with a fighter pilot <laughs> and. Uh, so at over over their their meal, as he incessantly talked about himself, <laughs> about what he did, how great he was, and she was about at the end of her chain when he said, "Well, enough about me. Let's talk about airplanes." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> So I'm probably guilty of that, and I hopefully I'm not guilty of the initial part of that. <laughs> uh, I uh, I have a great appreciation for the quality of people that I had the pleasure to work with yeah. through my whole career, and uh, 
And it just it made everything challenging, fun, and in my mind, relatively safe. So mm-hmm. I have I have I just feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity. Well, Kurt, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour because uh, from your career history, it's uh, you've definitely got some tales to tell. And uh, the F-14 is my favourite plane, as all my viewers will know. So I just want to thank you for joining us on the show. Well, I appreciate appreciate your interest, and uh, and uh, I think you know any any time I can help you out or answer any of your questions, you know, give me. I think we can talk on Skype. Thanks very much for listening we hope you've enjoyed this episode and don't forget you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircareerinterview.tv also please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content prizes upcoming interviews and much more and of course go over to patreon.com forward slash aircareerinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as one dollar per month thank you and see you soon